Meanwhile, just outside the palatial estate known as Castle Destro... Hello, everybody. This is Arthur Navier Burkhart coming to you from Ventura, California. And it's sunny out here. <laughs> All right. All right. We, got, we got a liner. That's good. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. This is Mike Irizarry. I am joined by my wonderful and talented co-host, Joe Colton, this evening. Hello, everybody. And our special guest, star of stage, screen, and most notably, G.I. Joe, Mr. Arthur Burghardt is with us. Arthur, how are you this evening? I am well, thank you. Nice to see you and talk, brother. Nice to meet you finally, Mike. You know? It's a, a pleasure to have you on, finally. We've, we've talked to a lot of the voice talent from the old G.I. Joe cartoon over the years. Glad that you finally made it to us here on special edition number 58. Of what's on Joe Mai. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Joe. Hello. Hi, Candy. Hello, lovely Stro. <laughs> well, lovely I am. Yeah, I'm getting <laughs> You're quite lovely, I'm getting, darling. <laughs> I'm going to be older than dirt around here, you know. My God. At any rate. <laughs> well, my God, what do you kids want with me? I'm just an old actor. Funny you should say that. That's kind of what we were looking to talk to you about. <laughs> well, if I can remember. I told you I'm old. We'll, we'll start at the logical beginning of, of a show called What's on Joe Mind. How did you get into voice acting, and how did that lead you to G.I. Joe's, the, the auditions for that program? I was born in Baltimore, and I was not, I was almost going to be stillborn in Baltimore because I, my mother couldn't get into a, um, this is how far we've come. She couldn't get into a hospital. They wouldn't take her. Yep. Wow. My dad was getting his uh, PhD at Johns Hopkins, oh, and he was, in, he was in class. He, well, he was with a professor when mother went into labor, and um, she couldn't reach him. Yeah, terrible times. Um, finally, Johns Hopkins. I believe Johns Hopkins was born there. I believe, or it could have been University of Maryland. I don't know. At any rate, um, my mom stayed there and died there. She's an Alabama woman, Alabama girl, who uh, went to New York and, be and who was a soprano and uh, joined uh, Carmen Jones as the second leading lady. She was the first understudy, and Billy Rose hired her, was screaming up and down, jumping up and down. Apparently, the story goes that Billy Rose was very upset that he had signed Muriel Schmidt just before he heard my mother <laughs> in the legendary musical play Carmen Jones, based upon Bizet, George Bizet's Carmen uh, in, in New York, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's, where, that's where she met my father. Ah, okay. Yeah, so he was studying at uh, University of Maryland. My mother... Not University of Maryland, studying at St. John's, and um, then came down to Maryland to get 
to get a PhD in political science, and he was the first uh, black man to go through their prestigious program there in Baltimore. Mm. And that's where I was born. My brother was born in 1948. And a year later than that, Chris Latter Collins was born some daggone where, probably in the sewer. Ah. <laughs> yes. I love Chris. I was thinking about Chris um, just a little while ago, as a matter of fact. I really miss Chris Latter. He was a great guy. Did anybody tell you that I really hate the term voice acting or voice actor? Did anybody ever tell you that? <laughs> because when you study, and actually I've studied voice since I was a child. My brother and I, I think I told you in one of our conversations before this, that my brother David and I used to imitate the voices of people we heard either on the radio or the television when we were young. Uh, in Baltimore, as a matter of fact, and and my my father had to have it because uh, he not only read a great deal, had a lot of papers, but he was a professor of political science, and television news was new, and so, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and all the ships at sea. You know, we you know we we heard radio broadcasts and we heard television broadcasts. My, I did at least, my brother did too, but. Uh, and when we were young, we did a lot of voices, particularly cartoon voices, uh, later on television, that we grew, grew up and with whom we became enamored. We're also heavy readers because father and mother wanted us to read. And so we were able to take some of those voices that we heard. And of course, the people, there were people in my parents' ballywick, you know, in their professional lives who meant a great deal to uh, the world as a country at large. Really a lot of famous people. There were quite a few famous people. Um, my parents in many ways were trendsetters and uh, we knew a lot of people. Okay, And so there were English people who were coming into our family, you know, coming to say hello. Some of you professors of English and Germans and Oh, yeah, you know, and there were black people and white people of all stripes. You know? We heard not only the names of people, um, some of them strange names, but we, we heard their voices, and early on, I started to play with the voices a great deal. I didn't think that I was going to be an actor as a child, but I did learn some things, like, do you ever heard of the word person? It's translation. you know what person means? It means from the Greek, by sound. It's interesting that poets, ancient poets, were, they were depicted as being blind because they spoke the words of their poetic lyrics, you see. So a person is someone who is known, you hear a person, and you know them by the sound that they make. So it's probably one of the oldest ways of communication by sound putting words to song, too, especially in song lyrics. And um, relating the human experience by the sound that you make. You are the human experience. And so um, I don't, I'm not a voice actor. I'm an actor. I'm an artist, period. I have performed 
certain characters in voice. How did I become a voice actor? Uh, well, I didn't. I did a lot of shows in the theater. I've done some television shows, and of course I had a couple of television series. I fell in love with Frederick Douglass, our Marylander, our homeboy, uh, Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frederick Douglass, uh, I, I learned of him, of course, in Maryland, and, uh, and I read his speeches, and I created a, a play about Frederick Douglass, and then we took it to television. Uh, a friend of mine was the interlocutor of the special program, Gil Noble, who was one of its producers, a journalist, as a matter of fact. And I did excerpts of the play, which earned me an Emmy, you know, which was nice. It was nice to get that for 1976, the 200th anniversary of the, of the country. That's, I got it in 1977 for the show that, we, I, that I created for television uh, through ABC TV in New York, and it was to be syndicated around the country. So from the one-man show and the plays that I did, I got into television, and, I, and then coming out here, I was found by a producer of voiceover and someone who had a... He had a, a, a um, a voice production company for uh, ads, you know, and he asked to take me, and I did. I came in, and he handed the tape to certain, uh, one in particular, uh, agents. And I got a phone call, and the agent asked me to come in and see him. And that's when I met Steve Tisherman, was with the Don Schwartz agency, and he, he broke from them and became one of the biggest agents in the world. And I joined the Tishman agency. Later on, I was represented by Arlene Thornton, whose husband, the great Jack Angel, who remained friends of mine. Steve and Arlene, by the way, the Tishmans are still alive. They are hanging in there, having the time of their lives. And uh, I've ceased doing voiceovers, but I... I didn't realize that there would be so many that I would do later on. Um, come to me that whatever fame that I've had stems from all those voiceovers that I did as a professional actor. That was a lot, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think I think it's it's kind of silly to say. Well, uh, you're a voice actor, aren't you? Other? No, I'm not. Uh, you're, a boy, you're a voice artist. No, no, no. What do you mean? Robert De Niro just isn't known as the voice he makes, for crying out loud. And it's his face, too. Now, if, if you could watch my face in the studio, you, you would see that I'm a complete actor, I suppose. I'm a stickler for that, I suppose, because I've done a lot of shows out of the grand repertoire of the theater. Does that make any sense, guys? Yes. And so consequently, I don't see that the voice is separate as artistic experience from what we do. Does that make any sense? Yes. Cool, cool. So I'm not putting you down, Mike. Not at all. Oh, no, 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 no. I just, oh, good. I asked that question that way so you would talk about all this. (laughs) Why, you rascal, you. I know, man. (laughs) I say that to him all the time, Arthur. <laughs> oh man, you 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 you, you part, talk about particle stimuli or 
goads. She does not use you know? the term okay. rascal, though. She uses much nastier terms than rascal. Well, <laughs> people come up to you all the time, you know, and they're not it's their audience. They could be even lay people in the industry. You know? mm-hmm. They may not even be professional, but they're amateurs or whatever. And, and that, this is true for many of the producers of some of the comic cons. I think sometimes when people call us voice actors, is they don't mean anything ugly by it or the pejorative of, or even to put us down, you know, for the money that we make or have made. They don't really understand what it is that we do. And it seems to be a trivialization, sometimes even a marginalization of what we do. You know, I did a, a show that's, that's an award show. I won't tell you what it is, okay? And there were a lot of people there, some of whom recognized me from the work that I've done. And they were quiet about it. They said, what are you doing here? Are you getting an award? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm the voiceover who introduces the award ceremony. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not getting an award. You're not acting. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not doing stand-up. Or no, I'm voiceover for the show. Ah. <laughs> you are the program. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't the program. I was just the, the voiceover introducer of the program. You know, Steve told me, so I did, um, oh my God, what is that show where the space alien comes down, the alien from another world comes down. Um, Joey Mascola and I were in it come to me a little while and Steve I said Steve I'm going to be the voice of the cyber suit and he said I said yeah I said well as the voice of the cyber suit you know I, I am I going to get some sort of really good mention in the title you know somehow and he said no that bothered me I was everything that the suit what is the title of that movie uh, it'll come to me. Jenny Lou Tugan was its executive producer, and Manny Cotto was the director. The title of it will come to me. It was a great movie. I loved doing it. Mm-hmm. He, he, he saved the earth with Joey Mascolo inside of him. And so uh, they had to get used to one another. Now, uh, you, you can't be a voice artist <laughs> to do. You have to be an actor with the other actors, and especially with the actor inside of you. Okay? It's not a cartoon. It's, it's acting. And so are the cartoons. It is acting. It is the essence of what we do. And it can't be uh, subtracted from the, the whole of the artistic experience in the theater, motion pictures, the cinema experience of speaking off camera or on camera. Now, does that make any sense to you kids? <laughs> yes. Good, good. Okay, cool. So, what was the... I, oh, my gosh. I told you I'm older than water. I can't remember certain things. So, so the second part of that question was what led you to, to G.I. Joe? I don't know. I can't, I'm thinking, I, sometime in, was it 1983 or 84, 
I think it was 83. That was the very first cartoon that I ever did. And Steve asked if I had any ideas about animation. And now at that time, I believed, no, I didn't want to do it. I, I too, had fallen into this trap of thinking that as much as I loved Rocky the Flying Squirrel and, and other, another kind of in, intelligent cartoons, I didn't want to do with, especially the new limited animation where um, they were churning out these, these cartoon shows that had, obviously the backgrounds were repetitive, right? They were on, they were on a loop of some kind. Mm-hmm. And these faces, like Deputy Dog or, or um, <laughs> uh, Huckleberry Hound. Huckleberry Hound, right. Now, I love the Warner Brothers stuff. Okay, there's no question. What does Mel Blanc, who we all loved, uh, my brother and I especially, we loved Mel Blanc. And we knew his name because we watched the credits, you know, roll by. But, but then I had some idea, well, if I wasn't going to do the voices that Mel Black had, I could do, you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I had no idea that my prejudice then was perhaps to keep me out of what has become one of the greatest little cartoon series we've ever had. And so I went. As a matter of fact, that day, I think I met Chris Collins for the first time. Chris Latta. And we had a lot of fun. They sent Steve a message. That Joe Bacall, Sun, Sunbow, and Hasbro sent a message over and said, we want a voice that replicates Darth Vader. <laughs> and I said, I know James O. Jones, and I'm not doing anything like James O. Jones. My voice doesn't sound like James O. Jones. <laughs> That's what was going on inside me, you know. I am not going to do James Earl Jones, <laughs> my dear Luke. As a matter of fact, they called the Disney called me because James Earl Jones couldn't do it and asked to replicate him. And I did it. <laughs> I did it because they called me and, and and asked me to be like James Earl Jones. I said now, wait a minute. This is a, a whole nother thing other than a Darth Vader, okay? I'm not going to do this. I, who have done these great plays and done a lot of good television, no, 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 no. I, I went and I, they asked me to do something, find something about this character, and I started to do this because I found out that James McCullen, his code name Destro, had some kind of a of a nuclear chemical accident and burned his voice. You see, so that allowed me to do some kind of guttural thing, and they they perked up, their ears perked up. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> and he's a Scot, you know. And I said, well. Maybe we we can do something that is Scottish around him. They said, "Well, maybe not because it, you know we don't want the Scots to be." Um... And then I said, "You know, the, the Scots don't mind the proper replication of their ac- accent." They said, 
Well, maybe we'll try it. You know, maybe we'll try it. We don't know. We don't know if we're going to have you in. <laughs> After all, there are other people out there, you know. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and I said, all right, fine. You know, I did my little audition. And it was about a week, you know. Apparently, everybody was screaming and raving that I should be in the thing. When I got there, I got a call from Steve and said, they want you. I said, who wants me? They want you and G.I. Joe. I said, do these people even know what G.I. Joe means? He said, well, you know, the, the, the producer's a veteran, Arthur. I said, yeah. Well, do these people actually know what G.I. Joe really means? Because I was a student. Remember, my, my, I told you my father was, was an historian and a political science professor, and my mother, also a college graduate, she knew great music, right? She, too, had studied history. Uh, a beautiful woman, by the way, y'all. Uh, Jamal grew up loving beautiful women, Joe. <laughs> so, Glad so, well, we will get you I, everywhere. <laughs> I, 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 so, uh, where was I? I? I said, do they even know it? And he said, well, what do you know it means? I said, it means general infantry, ordinary Joes. And a, a G.I. Joe, you know, I've got a, a massive poem called North Atlantic Slim, which spans four efforts of war in the United States. And it's the narrative of a, of a blues man, of a blues man through four wars, including war here at home. Uh, uh, in the civil rights movement in the 50s and stuff. But that that's for another time we talk about that. But uh, so, so he said, oh, okay. Yeah, General Infantry, Ordinary Joes. These Ordinary Joes or Dog Faces were gotten together. We were, They were called Dog Faces. These, these American men, white and black, as a matter of fact, to assault the beachheads of Normandy, Sword Omaha Gold Beach, you know. I mean, my God, these guys went through hell. These dog faces, these Joes, and uh, their names, you know, etched in history. And so I said, "Okay, sounds like a winner." You know, I'm, who am I going to be? Well, they're, they're thinking that you're going to do two of the uh, the American heroes and. Uh, Second in command of the terrorist, uh, the wealthy terrorist guerrillas who were trying to take over planet Earth. These are human beings who are terrorists. Okay, 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 I'm down. Whom do they want me to play? Destro. I said, all right. <laughs> well, so I'm going to gravelize my voice the whole time. Yes. Okay, are you going to give me a little bit more money for the gravelization of my throat? I won't have any left over anymore. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and on and on. So I said, okay. I didn't think that the series would last. I had a lot of fun uh, with the original cast. I believe that Joe was the original director. There was somebody else, somebody and Joe. Joe McCall was producer. I think that there were a couple of people from Hasbro who were there. The first read-through was interesting. They were in, rather infatuated with what I, the contrast between the sibilancy of the voice of uh, Cobra Commander 
what I did borrow from James Earl Jones, by the way, when I come up, is my Cobra Commander. You see? Yeah. That sounds a little bit like, like Darth Vader, you know. Uh, Morgan, she was the love of Destro's life. But I don't know if she was there in the first read-through or not. She may have been. I'm not sure. She'll probably correct me. But she was there early on, however, okay? Mm-hmm. And she has this, she gave it this Romanian accent, you know, kind of like you know, this, this thing about your hair. You know, oh, well, no, that's Scottish. This, this, uh, this Indo-European accent in English that sounds somewhere between Low German and uh, Hungarian thing. This, this very strange. But it was good. She was good. We had all these sounds that people were making. And they were allowing us, which is what I enjoy. I, I didn't think it would last, but I did think that we had a chance if we were allowed to play our individual sounds as much as we possibly could. That was important because, remember I said limited facial expressions and movements. You with me, Mike? Mm-hmm. Now, with G.I. Joe, the backgrounds had to be, they had to be well done. You know, there had to be a lot of action going on. It couldn't be too repetitive or right on a loop, right? You had to have a lot of different stuff happening, and especially in the battle scenes, right? Mm-hmm. And you had to have a lot of nice technical stuff, you know, lights and uh, not just explosions, but lights and industry and uh, sounds and stuff, you know, you had some stuff. And you had to have the vistas of underground or above ground fortresses and castles and <laughs> stuff. You had, it had to look good. So it was important that the actors were able to provide with good scripts, by the way, and I'll talk about that at some point, but with actors who are able to provide differentiation in their characters. Not just differentiation, but the kind of heterogeneity of individual uh, expression that human beings have, okay, that identify them. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned differentiation. You've talked a lot about Destro to this point. Did you have any specifics in mind for when you were voicing the Joes that you were you performed, uh, Stalker or Iceberg? Well, Clifton Nash was Iceberg's name. His code name was Iceberg. Mm-hmm. He, had to be, he had to be cool. <laughs> and he had to be a silent killer. You know what I'm saying, baby? Uh, Stalker, Stalker was by the book. Come here, Negro, out your boot. Do something. Yeah, you gotta do it. But Iceberg was cool, you know, smooth, cold. And Destro, now Destro was a white man, but they had, they didn't care. He's a Scot, white man. Thanks to the United States, we have the color line, which indicates that all of you on that other side are white and all of us over here are black. Well, uh, I wondered about that quietly. As a matter of fact, I was going to see who was going to raise the issue of a black man playing a Scot, even though there are black people in Scotland, as 
affairs, okay? And even though the Scots loved Frederick Douglass, I don't want to get into that <laughs> right now. Yeah, I don't, because I'll start lecturing and then what else you're a lecturer. <laughs> we'll just call it a nice convergence. Okay, listen, this is the first time I have ever, ever done a podcast. What? I have never done a podcast. I, I think I did a radio interview once years ago. I've done a television interview, or two or three of them, years ago. In fact, I was interviewed by Charlie uh, Rose when I played Frederick Douglass for him. Done stuff. Interviews, and um, sometimes I've, I've been talkative, and other times, you know, I'm shy. A lot of people don't know that, but I really am shy. <laughs> it takes a lot for me. Yeah, I am. True, I really am shy. When I go on stage, when I go on camera, when I when I go on microphone, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly the shyness disappears. I'm boom. I'm there. Right. You know, the prime directive, Joe, is to be there. And there's nothing like being there, quite other than existence. It it is the transcendence of existence for an artist. To be there through his, her imagination. Mm. What did you ask me, Mike? I think you covered it. I, it was just what what led you to GI Joe, and then we talked about your your characters on GI Joe a bit. I did want to throw in there: we are honored and privileged to be your first podcast experience. I hope yes. I hope it gets better from here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, maybe the next time I won't talk. I think it's because I'm nervous that I'm talking so much. That's all right. You have nothing to be nervous yeah, about. Seriously, You're doing don't worry great. about it. Thank you. But you, but you know, I, I, I would really prefer to hear you guys than me. Joe, do you all have right, a, a question for our guest? I have, I have a lot of questions. First of all, I have to tell you that I've loved the poems that you've been putting on line, on Facebook. I've been reading them, and my Thank favorite you. one so far has been chalice oh chalice yeah yes, yes. oh cool, chalice. cool yes cool the my favorite stanza in it is uh remove the urn of your heart and pour hope into the porches of my dry abraded ears for i am walking breathing body bag i carry my war dead within it's very uh very symbolic thank you thank you with other pieces that I've written, uh, maybe a couple of lines come to one, and then the rest of it is formed around those lines. And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you, you know, same thing happened in the cartoons, in the scripts. They evolved to be the best scripts that I had in all the cartoon series that I've ever done, and all the cartoons some of the others that I've, that I've looked at because I was going to audition for roles in them. I think that G.I. Joe was one of the best written cartoons or a serious cartoon with sarcasm or sardonic twist that has been written other than Rocky, Rocky the Flying Squirrel. Mm-hmm. When I was a child, there was a, cart- a little cartoon series for both children and grown-ups called Gerald McBoing Boing. At any rate, sometimes there would be a line come to me or a line that I read when I auditioned for the first player 
and for the gravedigger in Hamlet, which Frederick Rolfe directed for the theater. When I looked through Hamlet and I looked through his lines, there were there had to be something that would endear me to the character anywhere in the role, the great role of Ash Doc, Bertolt Brecht's great work, uh, the Caucasian Chalk Circle, which I did on stage here in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, an incredible play, a monumental play, in which my character had was the entire second act, which lasted for an hour and a half. Yeah, he practically was the entire second act. There had to be a, a line here or there that would stand out, which, which would create the character. The same thing for my writing. And thank you for what you said. I really appreciate that, sir. Uh, I... Forgive me, my dear. <laughs> That's okay. I don't know you that well. I don't know you that well, but God bless you and thank you. I uh, it was formed out of a couple of other lines. There's a I was gonna call it Sniper. There was a an eight line piece called poem called Hidden that I originally called Sniper and it too was formed from two or three sentences in my brain which became something else chalice was that way and all the other pieces that i've ever done uh, were that way they were formed the nacreous of the poem the nacreous like a little pearl like a like a piece of sand inside of the oyster shell which becomes a pearl yes that's the way things get formed in my brain and often that's the way characterization gets formed, too, when I act. There's a grain of sand that I gets into me that forms the basis for the character. Both for writer and actor, that's the mechanism, I think, which moves me. Okay. So were you, you allowed to... You're welcome. Were you allowed to ever ad-lib or alter or work with the writers on what the character was saying sometimes on the show? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that was led by Chris. Chris heard somehow that, that Hasbro was developing a toy line. There was a, there was a producer who was a veteran. His name was Joe Bacall. And uh, this company, they were, they were looking at Taking, I think it was Marvel, Marvel's comic, right? Based upon the World War II general infantry, ordinary Joes, right? The GI Joes, mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to turn that into a cartoon and modernize it. That the enemy was was going to be international terrorist organization, uh, like James Bond. And that these were going to be special operation executives, SOE in Britain and France, SOE in Britain and CIA or OSS, Office of Strategic Services, Central Intelligence Agency here. They were going to be fairly international, but they were going to operate under the American aegis. And he loved the idea, and they brought him in as a consultant. His character, Cobra Commander, the hissing sibilant sibilancy of that sound that he had. 
Chris is quite literary. Mm-hmm. And so he said that these characters are not going to work unless they had backgrounds and lives and things that good actors could, with, with which good actors could associate mm-hmm. the creation of these characters and make the show more important and more compulsory to view and hear and look at, along with the art. The art, the graphics, could have been, had to be great. He had uh, a foundation view. He had a, not only the bird, but he was the foundation. He was among the people who were founding, putting it together, which was great, because then it was something for us to do when we got there. Out. <laughs> so, when when we've had other other guests, other members of the cast on the program, they often spoke of how you and Chris Lotto were very close. Do you have any stories of of you and him getting into trouble that you you want to share? <laughs> oh God! See now, now, now I'm going to talk for fifteen and twenty minutes. Remember? I told you last um, week, man. An hour and a half goes quick. Well, well, let me ask you a question before we get into that. Okay. Did I satisfy? Was your answer was my answer to you, Joe, satisfactory? Yes, Arthur, it was. Okay, well, let me just add a couple of quick little things to that. Hold your question, uh, Mike, for just a moment. Certainly. I propose that Destro was literate. These could not be shows. They had to be grander. Destro and Cobra Commander had to have a grander vision of takeover and the Joes had to have grander vision in the directorate of their duties to protect the world, to protect North Atlantic Treaty Organization, CETO, the South Atlantic Treaty Organization. A lot of people don't remember that. I do. Uh, I tell you, I'm an old rascal. And it was a great question, Joe. It, it, It just couldn't be platoon talk. There you go. Right. You know, talk in the barracks. Right, did, you, did you see that derriere on uh, on that girl coming by there? You know, that girl may, might have been a lieutenant who could, you know, chop you in half, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, 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 no. First of all, another thing, too, was that there couldn't be any chauvinism, you know? I mean, if it was, it was going to be playful, Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Duke and Scarlet, you know, were were business. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they may have been lovers. They they got married, sure, I believe. You know, later on. As a matter of fact, in the script that I'm proposing, they just they have got married. They got kids, right? <laughs> and they're old farts by this time. But uh, it, there had to be it, it had to be grander and more literate. Impudent fools, that kind of stuff. I. I don't know if I can do Destro right now. Magia Cobra Commander. The futility of this enterprise is beginning to disturb me, kind of thing, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, especially when he, he was mutinous and he had to grab Cobra Commander and get a hook and throw him around. Of course, Destro was so powerful, the Cobra Commander couldn't without him, you know, and his military. Assault uh, Armament Research Center, or whatever they call it, Mars Guard. 
Destro needed his research. He needed his armaments capability, mm -hmm. or else they couldn't fight. See, but obviously, Cobra Commander, and then later on, Superintendent. Even though they had to have these mindless uh, beings behind them, there had to be some understanding of their human frailty as well as the things that they really wanted in life to, to come through, mm -hmm. or else it wouldn't work. So we were encouraged, most of us, to form the undergird of all of the characters' sensibilities and sense. You had to hear the soul food coming out of a stalker, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and he wanted to be with his kids, you know, stuff like that. You had to, you had to know that. You had to, to feel that. In, in all the main characters, there had to be things within their character development to make them more whole as people, or else it would have failed. Mm -hmm. We definitely made some suggestions. As a matter of fact, I think only once I added some things that could be uttered on television and to children. <laughs> I added some things that might work. As a matter of fact, I wanted to do a Scottish accent, but they told me no. I said one of the things that I didn't want people to, to think that this was a black man imitating a white man. Mm -hmm. He had to be a man who didn't seem to have anything other than a Scottish European lineage without sounding necessarily white, because you couldn't do that with a gravelly voice. In, in other words, I wasn't going to go, my dear Cobra Commander, baby. You <laughs> 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 like that. Mm -hmm. so, but, but still... You could see that, that Destro was not an idiot. Right. Okay. So that was the most attractive part, part of that. Yeah, we did make some suggestions, uh, which, many of which they took, as a matter of fact. Chris had, had uh, ideas, some of which were taken from James Bond, as a matter of fact, which the writers, the writers wanted to do anyway. There was mm -hmm. a real strong Ian Fleming in there, too. Sure. Uh, Jean Le Carré and other people who had made these great works in the post-war about undercover work, guerrilla activity. So, yes, to answer your question, yeah, we did. Now, the other question was, what was your question, Mike? Change the subject a little bit. Uh, a lot of the, the previous folks that we've talked to from the cast, they always used to tell stories that, that you and Chris Lotto were very close and, and you'd sometimes get into trouble with the directors and, and so, so on. Uh, do you have any stories that you want to share from that regard? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you put him on the spot, Mike. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. He's trying to behave. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, when people hear this, they're, they're going to go, oh, my gosh, you know. Well, Chris and I had a lot of fun, and people poked fun at me because I was usually very serious. When I got there, I wanted to get to it, and the reason why was because I thought that if it was going to work, then Destro had to be a serious manifestation of this, you know. But, but, but Chris had to have fun because that's <laughs> because often Cobra Commander started stuff, 
Mm-hmm. He, he was very rascally, which is what Chris was. And uh, then there was Mike Bell, who was all, always you know, the jokester, both of them, as a matter of fact. And sometimes they would, I was the butt of some of their jokes. You know? You're putting it on the spot because uh, there, there were a couple that I remember. And I, I hope that I'm able here to give you all something a little deeper glimpse of what we what we do rather than a lecture about acting, which I didn't want to do. People don't need to hear me lecture about anything, actually. I was serious when I came in. Yeah, serious and I wanted to get it done. And I, I loved hearing the banter between Mike and even other members of the cast. Sometimes Frank Welch would be there and Mike would turn you know, or, or he would say something to Chris, and Chris say something back, you know, laughing at the line, you know, and then they would both jump on me about something, and then I would turn and, what if, what if you get your white horse in here and do it? We can get done. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, which couldn't go over the air. Um, <laughs> when Wally Burr became the director of the series, Wally was a great man. I loved him, and uh, we had fights. And the longer that the series ran, these uh, arguments between all of us and Wally sometimes would take shape. You know, sometimes because there were so many characters and people, and there were actors who would come, would come in and guest star, and then there were the, the, the movies and stuff like that. So Wally had juggle big cast getting things done and sometimes the only way when the days were long would be to have some fun at Wally's expense or at my expense or Mike's expense or at Chris's. Someone said to me, Arthur, this is the whitest desk you've ever been, you know. <laughs> I said, well, if you be, I told Gautier once, well, if you'd be more like Serpenter and less like a dick, Everything would be fine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> there we go. And then, and then Chris said, he said, he said Serpenter has no ditch, dick. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we'd, we'd, we'd stop the place, you know, and uh, Dick Gautier loved to, to just needle me. Because I was practically the biggest guy on the set, except Chris. Chris, Chris Ladder, he was a big cat, too. He was six, Chris, six two. I'm six, three and a half. I've, I've lost an inch because of my back, I think. But I'm six, three and a half, you know, and I'd come in and be wearing cowboy boots. I'd be almost six, five. Everybody else was little to me. I, because of my persona, my persona was kind of big. Anyway, and I'd come in with a scowl on my face, and people would just glide away from me, which is what I wanted. <laughs> what I wanted until we got together and get three, because we were an ensemble. Ensemble is French for together, and you can't do something alone. And that bothered me, because then I was often brought in to be alone, especially if I had other commitments to do it, and uh, didn't have the benefit sometimes of being with other cast members. When when we were able to do these roles together, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes Wally broke us up, and that bothered me because I, I wanted to be part of the whole, and so did they. You know, we we got a sense of what was going on 
if we were with our brothers in arms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yes. Yes. And uh, it, it mattered to me to to be with them. But we were more manageable, I suppose, especially when we were joking around. Mike, Chris, Dick Gautier, they were the biggest jokers. <laughs> um, sometimes I'd get into it, you know, but I, I was very serious. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I think that people thought, well, Arthur's done a lot of work in the theater and he's done a lot of television and film. Dick did a lot of television, too. He's done a lot of television and film, and so he thinks he's better than the rest of us. And the answer to that was, yes, I do think I'm better than the rest <laughs> of us. I, I remember somebody asked him, saying that, you know, Arthur thinks he's better than the rest of us. Yes, I do think that I'm better than the rest of you, especially you, you little <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, I would, that broke the tension, usually. Right. I remember com- I remember coming in and sitting down at a, at a read through, you know, and I start screaming as though, ah, the ice is broken. Shall we dance? <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. We were stars, but we didn't know it. And, and we, well, we didn't. I didn't realize it was becoming as popular as it was becoming until maybe the fourth season, the third, third or fourth season, I think. And I was amazed. I was amazed at the types of runs that were going on. As a matter of fact, and the money that was being made. And then suddenly things changed. And the reason why was because there were more toys. Mm-hmm. And these toy sales tended to be what was more important rather than the show. And that put a chill on us as the actual artists in some respects, I think. The biggest problem that I had was that if Destro got smacked in the face, now a bullet or a shell hitting his arm or hitting him, or a fist, a steel fist hitting him, would produce an oof, ah, something like that. A, 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 that kind of thing that Wally wanted us to do. And he was right. All that. Now, if somebody smacked me in my beryllium steel mask, I wasn't going to go, oh, how painful. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He was the 24th wearer of the beryllium steel or the steel mask, you know, that it shined to perfection, beryllium <laughs> steel. And it's just simply not going to register on his pain anywhere unless it was heated up by a super laser or something, you know, or radiation of some kind. He's just like, you know, these oofs and everything, it just, it it seemed to be superficial. But you know something, Wally was right. Let me explain. One of the things that boxers have is the scarification of the brain. When you get hit in your face or hit in the side of your head, or hit in your upper body so much that it moves the head or shocks the head, right? Mm-hmm. What happens is the scars develop around the outside of the brain case just to the insult, which produces that slurry kind of dementia that some boxers get later on in their uh, lives. So the head feels pain if part, upper parts of the body or if the head gets the shock of a tremendous hit, even though it may not show on the skin, if there is a if there's a helmet 
if there is a tough face mask to repel the shock of, of the pain, but not the force. So Wally was right. Yes. Uh, and we may have had to stay overtime and to do all these and to put all the onomatopoeia for the people and the young people who are listening to this podcast. Onomatopoeia is a word that sounds what it means, such as bang. Boom. <laughs> okay. We got that. Uh, that yeah, lecture, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So we, we don't say bang. We can actually make a bang. But to the physical reaction to a fight or to something that happens to your body has to be registered to make it believable. Yeah, you know, actually, I had a couple of fights with Wally about that. You know, I've done that. You don't have to have four of those, you know. <laughs> Why are you doing that? Wally! You know, I mean, Arthur, if you don't do this, it's like, all right, you can just go on home. I'll just do something else. I said, no, 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 Wally. No, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to get through this with you. I'm going to give you what you want, you know. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm sitting there, and there may be other people there, or there may be no, there may be nobody else in there, and I'm doing all these, uh, doing all, I'm scratching all these, uh, all, all these sounds, and thank God I did, because uh, they were able to get a plethora of sounds that uh, were that accentuated the broadcast. So yeah, Wally basically was right. Sometimes he was a little wrong in the maybe we overdid it. He was perhaps um, a little bit too much of a perfectionist, but he didn't have to be. Sometimes he was pushy and a little arrogant, and a little angry, but he didn't have to be. And basically, Wally was patient. He was kind. He was generous. Wally Burr wanted to be known as a great director. And, you know, actually... I'm going to give it to him. I think that he was a great director. Like Alan Dinehart was a, and Gordon Hunt. And these are great directors. Great directors. Andrea Romano. I've worked with Andrea once, but twice. And she became, in my opinion, a great director. She could help the actors with where they were and what they were doing. We had to know that so that we could be in the present of the presence of what was going on. Mike, in order for us to be there, Joe, we had to know what was going on so that we could be there. You know, if, if it's not happening inside, then it's not going to be made evident. So, yeah, we had to fight. There were moments when, when but that's not what's happening here, or... Michael Bell is something else. If you want to direct Michael Bell, you have to be on your P's and Q's, dot your I's and cross your T's, because Mike Bell is fantastic. You know, he knows he knows what's going on. He's there. As a matter of fact, he aids directors with things because uh, he, he's able to see that if you, if, you, if, if you change perspective a little bit, then this is what's going to change the entire scene. And that's very important for us. As a matter of fact, that's what made the show better mm -hmm. than uh, ordinary cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got, you've got me at home. I'm looking out over the Pacific. 
I'm about 350 yards from the Pacific on a little rise of hill in Old Town, California, y'all. And the sun is not going down yet. It's still quite bright. And there's a mist coming in. Catalina Island is getting a mist. There's no breeze. Uh, Swaying the palm trees. And you can look out, and it's interesting. I'm sitting here at my dining room table which is cluttered, you see this. I've got all these other stuff that I'm signing for people. On one end, and the other end, I can't eat on it. On the other end, are um, I'll, I'll send you a copy of uh, Hidden, Joe. Okay. It, it's rough. Okay. And in fact, there's some things. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a couple of things that I'm getting ready for uh, publication. I would and, love um, that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to know what you think. Thank you very much. And um, on the other side, I've been writing since I've had a couple of screenplays that I've done. Um, as a matter of fact, I did some of the monologues in, in one play, two, two monologues in one screenplay based upon the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Samuel Taylor Coleridge's great, great rhyming ode Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I did two of the characters monologues to poetry. They were poetry when they came out. We didn't realize it. And so I've been getting all this stuff together you know, for pre-publication. But I want to tell you something. I told you shot, right? I, I want to mm-hmm. tell you something. A poem. The reason why I haven't put them out there is because I've been scared. I've been scared. Give me, give me some lines. Give me a script. You know, and uh, I may be quiet and grumbly when I come in, you know, but as, as soon as I audition, as soon as I get to stage, as soon as the camera's on, boom, I'm there. I don't know why that is. Uh, but when I write and I hand it to somebody, not performing it, I'll do it easily. Uh, but, you know, handing it to somebody to read, you know, I'm just, oh, I don't want to do it. So I've got almost two and a half decades of writing. That's my legacy. I want to get that this stuff out for my daughter, AJ, and for others in my family. I want to leave this stuff for them, you know. And uh, and as my friend in Seattle, Denise, tells me, well, you know, you're you're running out of time. Like, yes, I know, Denny. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so so yeah, I've got a lot to do here on that score. But, you you know, I I don't know, with all of this talk, I think that the older that I become, the more frightened I've become of opening up and letting people see things about me. And I talked about that, you know. We we smoked a doobop. You know what a doobop is, don't you? Have a little marijuana. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought. Uh, hey, you know, you you don't want to put that yeah. in people's mouths. Well, <laughs> well, I I don't I, actually actually uh, any of the problems that any of us, either of us or anybody else may have had with any alcohol, marijuana, or anything else is really unless someone has a problem with it, or unless somebody wishes to know, and maybe in another podcast I could talk a little bit about it personally. But I didn't want to talk about it there. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd have a drink, maybe even smoke a little weed. 
And that's fine. You know, I no longer do that. Either drink or smoke weed. As a matter of fact, I haven't for almost 32 years. And that's been very important to me because I was losing my life over it. Now, Chris did lose his life over that. Chris passed away. He had encephalitis, mm. which is water on the brain, inflammation of the brain, yeah. or the ganglia. And it may have been through water. Uh, brilliant man. You, you asked me about Chris and Greg. Yeah, we, we had a lot of It had to be fun or else it wouldn't work. The one thing that I found with the old actors in plays, whether they were black or white, was that, first of all, primary directive is that we work together on ensemble, an acting ensemble, or ensemble is French, but together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There may be more lines or more action for one or two people than anybody else, but they're not there even to steal the show. The show is not going to work without all of the parts working together. Individual is a nice word. It means undivided from the one. Now, the one in capital letters. A capital capital O is undivided from the one which people call God, capital G. And the whole of it could be and has been ascribed to being God. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's where the word individual comes from, at least in my understanding of, uh, of philosophy. And when you come together to do something, and if that does not work, and Chris and I would complain about someone or Wally or maybe somebody at Hasbro or Sunbo, you know, but usually nobody else. We would talk about this might be good if we, if we had this, if we did that, or you know, more about climate change, more about uh, uh, climate control, all of these things that are be- beginning to be... Uh, Part of the uh, policy of good governance uh, we could talk about. You can get into religion, uh, being religious extremism, being part of the GI Joes. Couldn't get, couldn't do that because we didn't want to offend anybody. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Ooh. actually, I wanted to do that, but the, and Chris did too a little bit, but we were struck down, and and that would be, and they were right. We couldn't do that without offending people. There are lots of innocent people who are Muslim in the United States who have been, been uh, who are being crucified, to use a Christian, <laughs> who are being crucified for their beliefs. That's not right. Ooh. And so consequently, we couldn't do that. It all had to be about um, war policy or... If we were going to do a totalitarian government, then the G.I. Joes were sent by democracies. Obviously, the Cobra Command is a corporatist, undercover, guerrilla terrorist group. Okay? Mm. Now, that's interesting, because corporations uh, provide uh, the monies for special operations executives, Central Intelligence Agency, strategic services, right? For the Joes, okay? <laughs> Obviously, they, 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 corporations and its workers provided the armaments, too. But the G.I. Joes uh, were, were 
put into operation by democracy. So that had to be maintained. That had to be seen. I wanted to to get on you know the Soviet the old Soviet Union, but we couldn't do that. And the bond shows these people like Blofeld was his name. Mm-hmm. Right, these were the, perhaps the old Soviet Union Eastern Bloc people, bureaucrats, right? Who became who became oligarchs, businessmen, right? Who uh, put together uh, their criminal conspiracies, okay? That countries like England had to be on their guard again. So Cobra could have been put together by corporatists or corporate bad guys, okay, um, who want to take over the take over the world. Now that we could do, but we couldn't mention communism or. And the reason why was because uh, there are uh, obviously there are communists in the United States who are. That's simply political. You're not trying to take over the country or anything, but their politics is their is their own. We couldn't have a political party in there. We couldn't do a political party. We were thinking about that too. We thought how wonderful it might be to to, to really get at the Republicans. <laughs> we couldn't do that. <laughs> Cobra was pretty. They were pretty progressive for terrorists, really. So long as you just. So long as you liked Cobra Commander best, they were good with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could have, and we suggested that we could have, at least in the United States, a politician who was undercover for Cobra. As a matter of fact, I think we did have a show like that. Cobra in Hollywood, like Lights, Camera, Cobra. Do you remember that show? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cobra in Hollywood uh, had some Hollywood people who were uh, working for Cobra Command. So we could have somebody, without calling them Democrats or Republicans, who were senators or legislators who were working for Cobra Command. But what's interesting was we couldn't have a president or a prime minister who was working for Cobra Command. I don't believe we ever did. And the reason why was because, now this is interesting, we didn't want people to feel that there was some sort of deep state conspiracy, as what's what's being called Mm. now, that was going on to undermine their countries. One of the things that we, at least I was, I didn't want was what I grew up with. And I remember the House on American Activities Committee. Mm. Okay. I remember that. I remember seeing that crap. I remember going through it, talking to my father about it. Uh, I was born in 1947, so back in the 50s when this was going on, right? I mean, my brother and I were up for a lot of play, but my ears would perk up when I would hear controversy, hear things going on, going that were going on. And I was a, as a kid, I was a devotee of Edward R. Murrow. Okay. So there was a lot, I'd hear things, and I would listen to, to newscasts and on the radio, and I was reading, and I could see things that were very disturbing. And also I became of age, you know, when we were protesting Vietnam, and I also came of age, you know, when I could see the racism in uh, black folks having had to, after, after what, almost 100 years, of having the right to vote 
having to demand that there not be poll taxes or poll tests, you know, or even in some places demanding the right to vote, which was given black people, you know, by uh, ratification of that amendment the 15th, you know, many, many decades earlier, my father taught King, by the way. And so I grew up with that. And uh, there were certain things that I didn't want to see happen, okay? Fighting for justice and truth uh, was, was more important, and for the protection of human beings is far more important than getting over a, some sort of political line about um, uh, the war-making capabilities of what certain people decided were extremists or the, the ultra-left wing or the ultra-right wing, okay? Uh, I did not like Nazism. And when I was a child, I saw pictures of the cleaning up of Auschwitz. Mm. And, you know, I, I had nightmares for years. I mean, my father almost decided he wasn't going to let me see them, but I, he, he relented. And uh, I, I saw things, I, I just, that simply, I, I, I even didn't see a doctor. I'm telling you, I just, I just, just, just unbelievably terrible things. And to learn of these things, you know, um, you go, well, what's the reason why I'm alive? And then something like G.I. Joe comes along, and that's the reason why you're alive. The protection of human beings. Now, look, look I, I want to tell you that I'm not sitting up here talking about G.I. Joe as being a, the, the series as being a, some sort of, uh, of an elixir, you know, for marching off, you know, into, into, the, into the dawn of a wonderful history. Okay protected by the Joes. No, 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 no. When G.I. Joe came along, it was, it was an opportunity to reaffirm ideas in young people about the availability of goodness and heroism and the protecting human beings and uh, good civic duty. It was also an opportunity for me to, to you know, the opposite, absolutely the opposite of what I am. <laughs> which is something that an actor wants to do. So, yeah, Chris and I talked about these things, and um, we rapped. You know, we're good brothers. He was a good brother. He was a good brother, and I enjoyed being around him and being with him. In fact, this is something that I'm not going to go into details about, but after 19... Well, it was just before 1988. It was around 1987 or 86. And then later on, before he died in 1990, twice Chris said things to me which saved my life. And that's the only thing I'm going to say about that. Mm. Twice Chris said things to me that ultimately saved my life. Um, I had a lot of anger in me about, about my nation. A lot of people don't know this, and I'll tell you now, but I have a great, 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 great grandmother living, who, who was alive, black woman alive and living in Farmville, Virginia in 1740. 
I have a great-grandfather, pictures I have of him and his wife, Julia Arrington Brown, John Napier Brown, Alabama. Beautiful couple. He's very dark. Not. Beautiful couple. Um, and uh, he didn't play. Okay, he was a greengrocer, a farmer, but he did not play. So I am the scion of a of several wonderful families of people who are the backbone, if you will, parts of it of this nation. And it's important for me to be able to do things that are it, to do some things that are civic minded too, you know, as well as spur the imagination. And I've, I've come to see that perhaps the adventuresomeness of heroism was not exploited by the little series that we did, you know. Uh, in fact, it, it, it may have given some people some ideas and helped along. Those of us who grew up and did not read, and that bothered me, you know. At least I was reading comic books, you see. But <laughs> a lot of kids who did not read, and I was very bookish as a child because my folks made me. But we need to do more reading. I hope that G.I. Joe spurred people to, do, to read the books of history about those conflicts that shaped us, such as World Wars One and Two, that shaped Western civilization a lot. Because they weren't wars, the wars to end war. You know, we're still going to stop. But obviously we have not learned. And as George Santayana said, those who have not learned by their experience are condemned to repeat it. Or something to that effect. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. So, and that's another reason why I wanted to do G.I. Joe, Joe, <laughs> was that uh, I, I was moved to be the kind of villain that I had hoped no one wanted to be when they grew up. Although he was menacing, you know, I, I, I wanted him to be more like Stalker or Duke or mm. Scarlet. Inspired a lot of people to go into the military or the jobs that they do now. So, kids, my really, yeah, your voice, Morgan's voice, BJ Ward's voice, um, even like Larry Hammond's comic, Chris Lotta. A lot of the kids that watch the cartoon, those characters influence them into being law enforcement, military, scientists. Um, yeah, doctors, uh, EMTs, firefighters, anything. Wow. Yeah. The main thing is, is when you get there, to remember that you may lay down your life for your country and your family, for your neighborhood, but to do so honorably and to do so is the paradigm of being human the greatest thing that a person could ever aspire to, uh, to be. I've done a lot of thinking about stuff, and I've conclusion that the only reason why we are in existence anyway is to love. Now, that, that may sound like religion to a lot of people, but that's true. There's something religious about me, and I don't wish to get into it here. But yeah, yeah, I'm glad that that has happened. Because be honorable in your work, for example, as a, as a policeman, is 
the most important thing a policeman could possibly be and do. Oh, yeah. People rely upon your protection, upon your ability to judge the situations correctly and appropriately. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's important. That's very important. And we do need a standing army, standing military. We do. Professional military. We will, as long as we are human beings. We have flaws. And uh, we have lust for power. And that must be controlled. That must be controlled. I've come to realize that uh, I can't point the finger at anybody else for that, by the way. I look at my own, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, um, controlling that is, is also an honorable thing, not only in yourself, but when you have to do that, if, if you're a, a clergyman or a policeman <laughs> or policewoman, helping people to restrain themselves or even giving protection and aid um, when appropriate, you know, is, is, is a great thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to do in its place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So we, we had this feeling that we were doing good things and having fun doing it, um, even though I, I think that maybe Hasbro's biggest for doing it, its raison d'etre, so the reason for being was to sell, was to sell war toys. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, his tanks, I like tanks, by the way, and <laughs> battleships. As a kid, I I I I built those. Rebel kit come, you know. I oh god, whatever I I saved my pennies and I got, I got a lot of kits. I got B I got a B seventeen, a twenty nine. I put together a. a Iowa class battleship. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh sure. So uh, I was ready made to be in GI Joe. You know, <laughs> I was in the Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps. So yeah. Okay. So we'll yeah. move move forward here. Uh, you have an appearance coming up very soon. On June 9th, you will be at Robo Toy Fest yep. in your home of Pasadena, California. Yeah, not far from my home. Uh, Pasadena is is uh, just, what, to the east, northeast of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pasadena Convention Center is at 300 East Green Street, Pasadena. And it's for one day. Now, if people are going to be around in the convention center, he's going to keep it up. Uh, Scott Zillner, uh, if, if people can reach him, at RoboToyFest, I think, RoboToyFest.com. Mm-hmm. Do you have everything there? Yes. Do you have that there, Mike? Yes, it is RoboToyFest.com. Okay. It is Saturday, June 9th from 10 okay. to 5. Uh, admission for adults is $10. Well, you know, if, 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 it, if, it goes, if it goes over to 6 or 6.30, <laughs> he has a deal with the, the convention center to stay open so that people can meet me. Or see me or talk to me as they as they need. He's not going to just throw people out because this is not going to be a two day convention. I'd love to see you there. It's my only time in Southern California this year. There was talk about I'm going to England next year, but I don't. Know. And let's see. Now I've got I've got a surprise. Are you ready for this? Go for it. Well, let me get this out of the way first. 
I'm going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, July 25th, 26th, 27th, and I'm leaving on the 28th. Raleigh! That's where I... So I'm going to be in Raleigh, 25th through 28th of July. Oh. Mm-hmm. In Carson's neck of the woods. Nice. So you can give him. That's grief right. For, you can give him grief for not being here. <laughs> yes, give him a lot of grief. Who? 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 who give who? I, I, you, you cut out. I didn't hear the name. Carson. Carson. Our, our, our third host, who is not here tonight. Oh, oh, brother Metaxa, the brandy I used to drink. Correct. <laughs> Which is very good brandy. Yeah, yeah. You drink that stuff, you'll be dancing the bazooki, yes. you know, and, and and eating moussaka, touching the derrieres of Greek <laughs> and acting like you're absorbing the Greek, you know. God, that was a great movie. I loved Anthony Quinn. Well, both uh, my parents are Greek, so. Oh, you are Greek. I am. I knew it. I knew it. I looked at your face and I said, yeah, she's going to be a green girl. <laughs> you are. Well, you, then now I feel, well, your face, girl, will launch a thousand ships any day of the year. <laughs> so you know about Helen of Troy. Right? Yes. Of course. That's, what I, that, that, that's from the Iliad. That's from, I had to study the Iliad when I was a kid, girl. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that about me. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm so doggone shy. So, Raleigh, North Carolina, it's called the Supercon. And then, now this has not been announced, but are you ready for this? This is a surprise. So, I think around August 23rd through the 20, uh, 23rd through maybe a summer around the 23rd, maybe the 24th, or even 25th, for two to three days, I'll be with Peter Cullen. Peter Cullen, my brother. Pete Cullen and Frank Welker in San Francisco. I haven't seen those two guys in so doggone long. Pete and I did trans we, we did a lot of work together. We had the same agent for twenty years, over twenty years. Yeah, Pete and I. As a matter of fact, uh, I kind of grew up a little bit with his daughter, um, Claire. She was a little girl, little baby, and and everything. Oh yeah. Man, I'm really dating myself. I'll go back a long way. You know? God. So that's a, an appearance for the folks up in the northern part of the state, California. Yes, San Francisco, San Mateo, which is nearby. And that's just been negotiated. Uh, I understand they, they wanted me to, to be there. I don't think anybody wants me to go anywhere, frankly. I don't think I have anything to say. People look at me, they give me that amused, strange stare, you know, from about a thousand miles away. That says, you're lecturing me, you talk too much. <laughs> well, yeah, I do, you know. You know, but I never really wanted to be, you guys, I never really wanted to be one of those aging actors who talks incessantly. And I've talked to a lot of aging actors. The, the actor's home. I've mm -hmm. talked to a couple of people that I know there, you know. And I would just sit and listen. Now people are just sitting and listening to me. <laughs> That's a sign that I'm getting ready to die, I think. No! <laughs> I, I love you. I'm going to adopt you as one of my daughters, girl. Uh, don't, don't put that on us, man. Come on. It's tough enough. Yeah, man. You know, 
I, I hear other actors are crying out loud. They talk a lot less, and I've been talking a lot less. I haven't had any. I haven't, I've been working so hard on all my projects and stuff. In it. But one of the reasons why I'm doing so much talking is because I haven't had anybody yet to talk to. <laughs> it's tough enough getting guests on our show. If if you get if you come on our program and then die, then we're we're never going to get anybody again. Right. <laughs> also, it would be a great loss if you did that. So please don't. Well, there's oh, that too. I don't know. Thank you, darling. Thank you, but I don't know. <laughs> you see, that, that's the consequence of kind of like being in a hermitage. You know, you have, it's like entropy. It's entropy. You know, all available energy. All available energy does, it just shifts somewhere else. It doesn't die. It just goes somewhere else. Mm. <laughs> So, so I, I have a feeling that that's what's going to happen with this little spark of energy, which is Arthur Burkhart. Uh, I, it, it, the energy of me is just going to go somewhere else. That's all. You know, my father died in my arms. He and I had such a, a rigorous relationship. My father died in my arms in 2007. Now, we had many years of laughter and talk, and I, I, I wrote... I wrote a poem to him, a hymn for my father. Um, and for a few years, we had some good stirring conversations. He told me some things that I longed to hear. He was going to come out here. He never did. And uh, he got uh, pneumonia, and it put him into a coma. And he had told um, my half-sister, Danette, to, uh, to call me and tell me wanted me to come. I got there just like out of the cartoons or just like out of motion pictures, right? I, I get there and my father's still in the coma and they're going to pull the tube from his lungs and everything. And his eyes opened up wide and he smiled and for a few seconds, it, it felt like only a minute. He, he looked into my eyes and I'm saying, Dad, Dad, it's me. It's, it's your eldest. I love you, Dad. I'm sorry about anything that I ever did. I didn't mean to hurt you, Dad. I was growing, Dad. I, I am you. I, I am my mother's son, too, Dad. Please, Dad, just talk to me, will you? I'm here. And then he expired. And we're coming up on Father's Day. Yes, you know, after having Mother's Day, my mom's gone. My wonderful mother. You know, and uh, I'm a father. And uh, How many children do you have? Why, I don't know why I threw that in there. There's something <laughs> wrong with you, Rosari. You know, you, just, you get me to say things that I didn't think I'd talk about. Blame him. It's the burden blame, I carry. Blame my... <laughs> Blame Mike. I'm sorry. Yeah, blame Mike. So I, you, you get you get these wonderful opportunities that you think only happen in the movies, right? To do, and my, I, I, I saw a smile on his face, and then it was as if you know the energy passed somewhere else. Mm. And I had his head in my arms, you know, and and I. What a wonderful thing to have. Yeah. I never thought I would say anything. 
Okay, so to some extent, I guess I'm giving back uh, what was wonderfully given me. So July 25th, and then it's going to be August 23rd, maybe, or 24th through my birthday, or almost near my birthday. Don't tell anybody, Joe, it's the 29th. And don't be calling me on my birthday. It's a, by the way, it's the same day that Charlie Park Oh my God! Okay. Big jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker. Michael Jackson was born on my birthday, and Ingrid Bergman was born on my birthday, and she wow. died before. She died the day before, on the twenty eighth of August, before her birthday. Was she seventy five or something? She's kind of young, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. I've got some great people around me, right? Okay, so so that I, it hasn't been announced yet, but I definitely wanted to do something around that time because I haven't been with Pete and uh, and Frank Welker. I haven't seen them in so long. By the way, there were people at the past. There were people at the Burbank. Just we just had Burbank Con that uh, I hadn't seen in a long time. My my great. Uh, uh, Jack Angel and, and Arlene Thornton, who was also a great and internationally well-known agent of voice, right? She 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 was there, and I hugged them. I I hadn't seen them, so they helped me. Mm. In fact, there were people there were people coming back into my life who helped me, and and helped me come to some kind of good, which is all that. I have to really do now is to uh, do some kind of good. Mm -hmm. You know, that's most important. Okay, enough of me. Oh, oh, and November twenty second through twenty fourth, Louisville, Louisville in the bluegrass. You know what I miss? I miss Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I lived in Atlanta. Kind of grew up there too. Have I got stories to tell you about that? Oh, some other stories from G.I. Joe has just, have just come to me. But that's for another time. Some other <laughs> stories have just come to me, and I'll do that. Absolutely. Well, we've got to have you back. I don't know. It's up to um, Senor Iz Irizarry. Uh, yeah, I, you're <laughs> in. Remember, re remember this. You impudent fools. Cobra stops the world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Arthur. We will certainly have oh, you back later God. in the summer. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. This we got to get this straight, man. You're gonna bring me back, man. Get your technical stuff right. <laughs> <laughs> we we will absolutely have you back later in the summer, Arthur. We gotta we gotta get part two of your your travel log. Oh God, my travel log, my geographic. Yeah, my geographic. Joe, my darling, is. So good to meet you. Likewise. Thank you. Greek, eh? Oh, girl. <laughs> oh, I, I love Greek cuisine, by the way, so we got to go and get us some good stuff, okay? Oh, I have to cook for you if we're going to do Greek hey. food. Hey! <laughs> Michael. You know, Mike, I was confirmed, Michael. Oh, yeah? 
Yeah. You know what Michael means, don't you? I, I know the meanings that I've given to it. Pain in the butt? <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of them? You know, I've been a butt, and my mom would say I was a pain in the butt. Um, Michael is from the ancient Hebrew or Hebrew. You ready? Go for it. It means who is of God. Are you sure? That's definitely not it. I think it's pain in the butt. See? <laughs> so that about sums it up there for Arthur Burkhardt. Again, you can catch him in Pasadena at Robo Toy Fest at the Pasadena Convention Center. That is Sunday, June 9, from 10 to 5, $10 admission for anyone over 12. Early bird admission is $15. Uh, again, Arthur will be in attendance along with Hank Garrett, Buzz Dixon, Mark Belomo, and a host of other folks, uh, G.I. Joe and not. So, Arthur, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate your coming on and chatting with us. Well, can I say one more thing as I'm going out? I had a lot of fun, and I pray that I didn't lecture anybody you know i talk too much but this has been great and thank you so much for having me and to anybody who's listening be good be good to yourself be kind but above all do something for somebody maybe even like smile at them <laughs> thank you joe thank you mike god bless good night thank you arthur thank have a good you. evening everybody Say it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, have a good time, cause it's all right, whoa, it's all right, we're gonna move it slow, when lights are low, when you move it slow, it sounds like a moan, and it's all right, whoa, it's all right. Now listen to the beat Kinda pat your feet You got soul And everybody knows That it's alright Whoa, it's alright When you wake up early in the morning Feeling sad like so many of us do And surely something's gotta come to you And say it's alright Say it's alright It's alright Have a good time Cause it's alright Whoa, it's alright Now everybody clap your hands Give yourself a chance you got soul, and everybody knows that it's alright. Whoa, it's alright. Someday I'll find me a woman who will love and treat me real nice. Then my wrongs got to go, and my love she will know. 
from morning, noon, and night. And she's got to say it's all right. Say it's all right. It's all right. Have a good time. Cause it's all right. Whoa, it's all right. Everybody clap your hands. Hello. Oh, oh, if you want to reach Mike Mel, leave a message at the sound of the tongue and he'll call you back. Goodbye. <laughs> He's doing a bit. <laughs> Is he really? <laughs>